and he was a professional athlete. Um, he raced bicycles. His whole life was about his body. And suddenly, uh, he had an accident, a serious accident where he was very fortunate to have lived through the accident. So there he was at age 39 um, for several months, six or nine months, six, it was about eight or nine months, that it was unclear whether or not he would ever walk again without a walker. Uh, it was unclear if he would ever spend another hour of his life without real pain. This is a heavy weight. Suddenly, one day you're on a bike, the next day you're flattened. So when he called me, uh, he said, help. Um, I really need help here. I am locked in aversion. That's all I'm experiencing. I hate what's happening to me. I hate the experience. I hate the pain. I hate that I can't support my family. I hate that I can't walk. And on top of all that, I'm judging myself because all these years I've been practicing and it's done me no good. So I am hating myself because I can't do anything but hate this. So I went to see him since he couldn't move. Um, And the first session was just completely grief work, of course. He had so much to let go. He just had to really grieve. And he hadn't quite been able to do that yet. Then the next time we did this pain meditation that we did for a few minutes. And in his case, that time, it decreased the physical pain so much that he was so elated that something had helped that he was like this born-again, you know, pain meditation. (laughs) He was like, that's all he wanted to do. I mean, it's very motivating when you have that kind of pain. So he realized that he'd been saying, you know, I want to do more retreats, I want to do more retreats, but I'm too busy all these years. Finally he realized, oh, here's my chance. I'm sitting here or laying here all the time. So he decided that he was reframing his experience as a retreat, and he began to do a lot of practice. And um, it didn't take long for him to see. I mean, it was over and over. It was every hour. He got to see. If he was fighting this experience, if he was needing it to be different, if he was resisting it, he was suffering. And the physical pain was worse. And Every time, if it was even for a few moments that he could open, there was this space that was workable. So he practiced and practiced. He didn't have much else to do, I mean, besides a series of surgeries. I mean, there was plenty to do, but he did a lot of practice. And over a period of months, he transformed his relationship to anger and pain and all different kinds of aversion. He was really meeting life in a different way. It didn't mean that he liked what was happening. Of course he didn't, you know, like it. But he was coming to peace with it, coming to terms with it. Um, Someone once said that hell is resistance, And heaven is acceptance, period. And you can think about that. Ponder it through your retreat. Hell is resistance. Heaven is acceptance. 
And he was experiencing this at a very deep level, day after day. Um, He said, he once told me, he almost felt a little guilty about this. He said, there are times when I can just be with the sensation or with the experience, and if I really open to it, I'm not only feeling okay, I'm feeling more peace and some sort of undercurrent of happiness than I've ever had in my life. And he, he was a little like, wow, I can't believe this. You know, it's a little bit scary. And um, it's not to say it was all easy. No way. It was very up and down, just like your day is here. And so there'd be times he'd get caught, then he'd practice again, he'd let go again. It's a practice of remembering, oh, again, returning again, again, and again. And the very hardest thing for him were a number of times where, and it happened in the middle of the night, when he became completely contracted in fear. And his mind just was filled with, how am I going to endure this? How am I going to live the rest of my life like this? How am I going to deal with not being able to walk, and how am I going to earn a living? You know, the, the fears, normal human fears, very understandable. And he would get so, in those number of times it happened, so contracted um, that all that was left was the aversion, and the physical pain would become intense at those times. And he would then tend to judge himself. You know how that is? Right when we most need kindness, when everything's at the worst, we'll then pick that time, of course, to beat ourselves up, which is what he would do. When we're in a contracted state, we just, whatever, we contract. So in those times, a number of those times, his meditation, his mindfulness, his being there, his seeing it, his opening, didn't, it just didn't work. He couldn't get, he couldn't find the mindfulness. So I reminded him that the Buddha taught, if you're completely caught in aversion, and you cannot find a thread to the present, you can't find a thread to mindfulness, the antidote, the medicine, is love and compassion. And in those times, he wasn't able to feel love or compassion for himself. So he, the practice he ended up doing in the middle of the night in either hospital or these various places he was staying to recuperate, rehabilitate was the word, is that he would remember, he would just lay there and begin to remember all the multitudes of people, of men, of women, of children, who were experiencing some kind of pain, some kind of loss, people in refugee camps, people in wars, people in hospitals, people everywhere, experiencing all kinds of the things that he was experiencing. And one night, in the middle of the night, that practice just broke his heart open. Because he didn't just remember them, he would remember them and send them compassion. Just compassion to their suffering. He could so easily relate to what they were experiencing. And one night that just broke his heart open, the suffering of the world. And he finally was able to really feel great compassion for his own losses and for his own pain. He finally could just hold himself in kindness and in love.
And that was a huge turning point for him, as it is for all of us. Every, every time we can do that, it's a, it's a sort of turning point. The um, self-judgment had been solidifying that sense of a solid, separate self. It's very isolating, fear, pain, aversion. And when he really opened into that compassion, the compassion dissolved that sense of, of separateness. So he began in his practice to experience the very deep experiences of just the vast openness of being. Just a great underlying emptiness that is both empty and at the same time completely full, filled with, with love. So it was through the most difficult experience, through the most aversion he had ever experienced in his life, that he opened to what he had been most looking for in his spiritual practice. The aversion was the gateway for him. And I really want to clarify here, it wasn't the severity of his accident that opened him. It was how fully, how wholeheartedly he practiced with the aversion. How many million moments he just kept coming back again and again. Can I see it? Can I be with it this moment? That's what did the work. And also I don't want to give the impression that he's enlightened or anything, that he lives in a continual state of this awareness. It's not so. His life is like ours. But he he has the un... There is not a doubt in him about what is the truth of being. He knows what he's made out of now. And he knows that there's a practice that if he uses it, will take him back to connection with the deeper truth of himself. And actually, there is a kind of happy ending to that story. Finally, the third or fourth surgery removed the pain. Um, And he has talked to me about how without that intense pain, um, it's harder to stay as motivated in practice. But he's, so he notices that. He notices that. So, Obviously, there's a, the point to the story is that we do not need to have a tragedy to motivate us to practice. We don't need terrible pain to open us. We're here. We're at this incredible situation, this extraordinary environment for opening. We have the opportunity to do the exact same practice he did without the tragedy to practice over and over if a moment arises of a difficulty, of an anger, of a pain in the knee. Oh, can I actually practice with this? Can I see it clearly? Can I name it? Can I allow allow it to be here? Can I be present with what is coming without having to push away? And if we're totally caught can we hold ourselves in compassion, in mercy, in kindness, instead of adding more suffering by judging ourselves more?
every time we meet ourselves, our difficulties or our joys, with mindfulness, with clarity, with compassion, every single time we're setting ourselves free. Moment after moment, we're untangling the knots. And a little aside, there was a Buddha sutta that said, um, it's kind of like the one I said this morning, where someone came to the Buddha, and this time he said, "Um, Sir, how can you tell if one has been nobly trained? And the Buddha said, if one has been nobly trained, and if an arrow is shot and hits them in the leg, that one experiences the pain of the arrow in the leg. And the person said, well, how is that different from everybody else? The Buddha said, one who has not been nobly trained, the arrow hits the leg, and then the person who is in pain proceeds to take arrows and continue shooting them, a second arrow and a third arrow. You understand what I'm talking about, what he's talking about? We're in our, we're in the pain, whatever it is, the knee pain, the pain in the hospital, the pain of anger, and then we shoot the second arrow, we judge ourselves, then we beat ourselves up for that. So we, we actually increase our suffering. This other way to relate to aversion, he's recommending we can just experience the sensation or just the sadness. And there it is. It's a whole new relationship to how we can be with the difficult. And I want to really stress, as we do this over and over, we're not just cultivating like a good attitude, a positive attitude. We're actually in this process of over and over opening to life, letting go of our resistance, letting go of fighting against life. When we do that, we are unveiling the boundless heart of wisdom and compassion that is inside of each one of us. That's what we're doing in practice. We're coming back to the true nature that can open to all of it. So I'll just complete with... um, There's a favorite teacher of Spirit Rock, one of our favorite teachers from Thailand, the unusually eccentric and fabulous Ajahn Jiminyan. Have you experienced him? He's a character, and he'll be here in May. I highly recommend him. Really an extraordinary person. Anyway, Ajahn Jimnian says, gradually with practice, you move through this suffering world, but you are no longer caught in the suffering. You abide in a peaceful heart, and life becomes joyful. Want to add anything? Do you promise? (laughs) (laughs) Is it bad? (laughs) Know that life becomes joyful. Oh, do I promise? Ajahn Jemnian does.
there is a certain joy that happens when we're not fighting with how it is. But not to be confused with a kind of giddy happiness. It's definitely true that the more layers of resistance to being here, the more uh, we let go of strategies of survival that are neurotic, and the more we're able to be friends with fear, it's definitely true that what keeps emerging is a kind of deep peace mm. that is, is, it's real happiness, it's true. Mm. And, and what I love about the practice is that it keeps opening glimpses to that, mm-hmm. longer and longer ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some kind of a cumulative effect yes. of the repeating the practice over and over again. Yes. And it's as though learning directly, firsthand, that the real nature of mind-body is not suffering, mm. actually. That suffering is added uh-huh. because of the way we go about living. Right. And uh, that the real nature of our mind is is emptiness and, and peacefulness. And it isn't an ecstatic, as you know, joy, although there's bliss that mm-hmm. comes. It's, a, it's that deep, deep contentedness with everything just as it is. Everything just happening exactly the way it is. There's a perfection about it that's incredibly sweet. Yeah. The great innate perfection, they mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. And that, that it's that it is what each one of us is made of is so extraordinary. That the thing we're so looking for is right inside of us. That that is so extraordinary. And that this practice is one of, I think of it like, um, like there's been this, there's this incredible jewel and there's been this avalanche. The, and, and the avalanche buried it. And there's this journey of undigging uncovering what was always there. The amazing thing about it, though, is the avalanche is, is what's so also. Yes. It's, the, it's not like the coverings over mm-hmm. our peaceful state are abnormal or pathological. It's the whole picture, the whole package. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, they're, the, they're it, too. I mean, that's what's really incredible is when we start getting that our personality is actually an expression of this nature. Mm -hmm. That's very amazing. Mm. Mystery, isn't it? Everyone's always asking, well, why is it like this? Mm. Uh, why, Why have all this? stuff to wade through in order to feel right. I heard the Buddha answered that question once. Did you hear what he said? No. None of your business <laughs> is, is the translation I heard. <laughs> Do you have an answer for no, that? No, that's the best one Dr. Hall? <laughs> Jack's answer is to thicken the plot. To thicken the plot. <laughs> but I like none of your business better. <laughs> I think 
There are certain questions that take us up into our head spinning. Yeah. And whenever I get up in my head spinning, I've lost the thread. I'm, I'm, I'm not on the right track. It's not going to liberate me. It's not going to bring me peace. It's not, you know, it might be an interesting thought, and the Lord knows there's volumes written about that question. I remember once sitting in front of my first spiritual teacher, a great spiritual teacher, the, you know, that opening one, and uh, I, I wanted to ask a brilliant question. Of course, that, you, you always want to do that. And, <laughs> right. Uh, maybe you'll ask the question that gets his attention. Right, yes, know? yes. So I, I uh -huh. thought all day, and I thought all day, and, and uh, went in there that evening and for the, the session with him. This is in India. And uh, he came in and sat down. And he looked at me and said, you can ask your question now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then the question was, uh, do thoughts have substance? I thought mm. that was brilliant. That's really, yeah. that's really deep. Really, yeah. He smiled and he said, it would waste your time for me to answer that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Not his time, but mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh. We're such babies. Mm. Mm. Compassion to how we want, how we, all the things we do to get love, huh? Yeah. yeah. What it's for. Yeah. Please love me, somebody. I heard this, I read this thing recently where a Nobel laureate, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, went up to receive his Nobel Peace Prize and giving the, you know, the huge important speech you give in front of you receiving. He said, well, this is, a, this is just like a, a dessert. What I really wanted was love. <laughs> it's true, it's true, isn't it? Remember, that, it reminds me of Sally Fields at the Oscars. And she gets the Oscar and she sort of stunned and she stands there. This is famous. Did you ever hear this? She goes, you like me. You really <laughs> like me. Very <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. mm. oh, well. I'm going to read something. This is my um, favorite Dharma book. The whole thing. It's the pith teachings of one of the great, great teachers, His Holiness Dilgo Kensei. So he, toward the end of his life, what he felt was the absolutely most important, he got into this. So I'll just read you the first two or three sentences. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people experiencing everything without mental reservation and blockages so that one never <clears throat> withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. Clarity of awareness may in its initial stages be unpleasant or fear-inspiring, if so, then one should open oneself completely to the pain or the fear and welcome it. In this way, barriers created by one's own habitual emotional reactions and prejudices are broken down. Isn't that, I mean, it's so simple, but you can somehow just feel the enlightenment, and it's just, it's, you know, just 
So simple to simply develop a complete acceptance <laughs> and openness to all situations. You first. All people <laughs> and emotions. You do it and then I will. The, one of the incredible things I found in the path, in this path, of, of this path that we're sharing, the work of trying to be open to life as, as it is, is that there are times that that doesn't mean I have to like everybody. This doesn't mean I have to be good and be lovey-dovey to everybody. It means, can I even develop an openness to the fact that right now I might not like it? Can I open to that? Can I open to being closed? Can I open to being stuck? It's not about, this teaching doesn't say, I'm supposed to always be open and happy. It's really, can I open to just this life, just this moment? And that is a freedom, incredible kind of freedom. It's another level of openness to, that includes everything. Please. That, that leaves me confused, which I actually felt when you first read the sentence. How can you tell when you're, you know, for example, I don't really like walking meditation. It makes me hear lots of judgments and stuff like that. And if I sit on a bench, I feel great. And I don't have judgments as much. So how do you tell how to, you know, when, I mean, you seem to have given us the ultimate out. Whatever we want to do is whatever we want to do, so we go ahead and do it. But there is also <clears throat> spiritual practice that we may be actually avoiding it. Yes. How do you know? How it's you such know? a good question. It's a great question. Oh, boy. <laughs> Did everyone hear the question? Everyone hear the question? If... If, I, if my work is just to open to everything, well, then why don't I just simply, if I don't like walking meditation, I'll come and sit, and then I don't ever have, you know, I can just open the fact that I didn't like it and go sit down. Um, <clears throat> right when you said it, I had this thing, and it just left. It'll come back, though. Did you get one? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you could. Uh, if you were really able to open t- to the aversion, but you have a reaction to your aversion, or you wouldn't be talking about it, you see. If you were really uh, accepting of everything just as it is, there wouldn't be any need to practice because your life would be practice. It's because there is always that holdout. There is always that contraction that we keep working. That's an explanation, but not a how can you tell. I, got, I remember my answer. It's direct, it's direct knowing. When you're, when you're open to everything and there is no longer any striving nor fear, there's no doubt about it. You don't have to wonder, how do you tell? It's absolutely direct information. In the meantime, <laughs> before the absolutely direct information, there is this dance of, of yin and yang, of, of absolute relative. There's the full moon and the little moon. It's just this earth we're on. And there is a dance between discipline and what you might call um, a free-form kind of life. There's a dance. And in meditation, there is actually not a nice, tidy answer like a computer program to your question. The, the life, spiritual life, spiritual development is much more like an art form. 
And it requires a kind of ruthless honesty with your own self. And I, I believe that in you, you know, I have a feeling that you know there's value for you at this stage to stay with the practice, just do the walking and then the sitting and be with the aversion to the walking. Am I right? Is there a sense in you that you sense that there's a... It's not without clouded feelings about it. Right, but is under the clouded feelings, is there kind of a, a hunch that if I just avoided the things I don't like, that that wouldn't necessarily... Maybe. I, I get a feeling. <laughs> Generally, unless we are pretty far along, there's tremendous value in, um, in discipline, in what's called wise effort. Uh, one, I had a wonderful, I still have this wonderful mm. Tibetan Rinpoche I work with, and he was just learning English. This was about seven years ago when he said this. Now he's much more fluent. But he was saying... Um, Oh, Americans, Americans, must, must love yourself, must love yourself. Because he was learning. You know, Tibet, or Tibetans don't, this is a learned thing for them. They, they don't have to, <laughs> the whole self-esteem thing doesn't seem to be wired into them in the same way. So he's saying, very important, love yourself, be kind to yourself. And he says, but love yourself does not mean napping through every meditation. <laughs> he said, love yourself is use this precious precious incarnation, to wake up. <laughs> so there's your paradox, is that while we're on the path, another way they said is it takes effort to become effortless. It takes effort to learn to ride the bike before, at first, you, if you didn't ever use the discipline to keep going back, you just keep falling off the bike. But then there's a way you can ride the bike and it, you don't even use your hands. So if you intuitively know you're still at the phase, I, I still need to use my hands, uh, the, the discipline, let's say this discipline here, of just coming and sitting and then just going and walking gives us so much to work with. And we get to see, we really get to see where we're resisting life and where we're opening and what we judge, and just inside this very simple form. And then there comes along times, times of our life and times of our development where it may be crystal clear from direct knowing that it isn't the best for me right now to do this walking meditation. But generally, for most of us, until we're pretty far along, the, the discipline, the form, is a gift. And inside that form, everything can happen. But in reference to the, that how do you tell, the, the experience of having moments of awakening is absolutely different from ordinary consciousness. It's like going from a dark room out into the sunshine. It's, it's totally different. And uh, there isn't any question about it. And when the moments, however long they last, pass, you're left with, what was that? Oh, that was what it's about. Uh, unfortunately, like Jack's new book, uh, first the ecstasy and then the laundry is the title of it. Uh, you get, you, you, it's the title, it's wonderful. You, you, you get the awakening, but uh, for whatever reason, back to ordinary. Mm-hmm. And the washing the dishes and making the bed. But you don't forget what that was. Yeah. It's indelible. That's right. 
Christians have a saying too, remembering the darkness what you saw in the light. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it's good. Thank you. We should stop. Yeah. So, I wonder if there's something I can read you before we stop. To go back into your quietness. Read one of my poems. Oh, you read, yes. No, you. No, you. No, I read. <laughs> no, you, no, you. If I have another. I'd rather you read it. Okay. In case you didn't know, when Robert reads his poems, he wrote all of these, and soon we will have them in book form. This one, Forgiveness? Thousands of times I've wished for redemption and the easy breath that comes with forgiveness of sins, real and imagined. But where does one find that blessing? Certainly not from moralists who carry the book around in their hearts. Certainly not from pious posers who hide their shame inside splendid robes. Perhaps from friends who carry goodwill for others deep inside their own suffering. Maybe from the trusting brightness that shines from children's eyes but always from that place holding truth within the darkest darkness, lying under softest moss, surrounded by the sweetest trees, in the most intimidating forest of confusion guarding the heart's gate. Where to enter in is given only to the most courageous body full of gratitude and kindness and generosity, given freely to the sinner and the child who reside in all of us, who seek belonging in the family of conscious love. Ah, so let's just sit quietly for a few moments.
So you have 45 minutes for walking meditation, and then there'll be a sitting, the last sitting. Nine o'clock. At nine o'clock. If you happen to feel the desire, the energy to sit on beyond nine o'clock, of course you're completely welcome to do that. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.